Luke 17. Continuing our verse by verse, study here through the book of Luke. Luke 17. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the Luke 17. I love verses 11 through 19. Looking forward to that next week, the ten lepers being cleansed. It's a great story. Problem is, I don't like verses 1 through 10. So to get to verse 11, we got to do verses 1 through 10. A lot of tough stuff today. Good, practicable Christianity, applying it to our lives. But boy, it's tough when you try to do that. So Luke 17, let's go ahead and jump right into this verse 1. It says, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, depending on your translation, that word offenses. Some translations have temptations or stumble. And in the original Greek, it's actually an interesting word, and it means a trap. What it means is one of those twigs being bent back that if you would trip a cord, it would snap and it would hit you. So basically, Jesus is saying it's impossible that you're going to live in this world and not come across a trap, a temptation, a stumbling block. That's the first point. You're going to be tempted. You, you are going to face temptation when you walk in this world. And as you face temptation, what are you going to do about it? Jesus says it's impossible that you're going to go through this world without being tempted to do something sinful, to do something wrong. Now, we have to lay some groundwork before we get to the key points here. The first thing that you have to realize, when you are tempted and drawn away into sin, it's no one's fault but yours. We have to establish that fact. We live in a society where we like to pass blame. We like to say it was how I was brought up. It's what my parents did. And your parents may not have done a great job. But you're still responsible for your own actions. We like to pass blame on other people. Where we like to say, you know what? If she wouldn't act that way, I wouldn't lose my temper. If he wouldn't do that, I wouldn't do this. No. It is your own fault. James 1 makes it abundantly clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. I don't need any help to sin. I can do it all on my own. Now, I can try to pass the blame on to someone else, but that's the one thing in life I'm really good at. So, next thing, God doesn't leave us hanging. Jesus is there to help us through it. Hebrews makes it very clear in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 that Jesus has gone through the trials, passed the tests. And since he has passed the test, Hebrews says that we have a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. So, Jesus knows, understands, and is there to help. Now, we come to the last point of this. If you will, turn to 1 Corinthians 10. It's important to see this. 1 Corinthians 10. I will be tempted... It is my fault when I give in to that. Jesus doesn't leave me hanging. He's there to help me through it. He's my high priest that has been tested, passed the test that will help me through it. But now let's get to this last point, 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, and let's go uh, start in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. Let's stop right there. Every temptation you face, someone else has already faced it. We have this this idea that no one else has struggled like I've struggled. 
No one else has been tempted to fall into sin like me. No one else has had it as difficult as I have had it. No temptation has overtaken you except as common demand. There's someone in the body of Christ today around the world that's facing the exact same temptations you and struggles you are. Maybe somebody in this exact room. And if you look throughout the course of history over the thousands of years since God created man, the temptations really haven't changed. We like to think they're new. Well, they didn't struggle like I struggled with. I mean, the pornography on the internet, there's those movies, etc. Hey, I tell you, there was women problems back in the Bible. Well, alcohol. Well, no, it's not like today. It's on every single corner. Nope, there's numerous problems back in the Bible. No temptation has overtaken you except as common demand. We all have been there. So with that being said, look at the rest of verse 13. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. For every temptation you come across, God also gives you a way of escape. You know what the easiest way of escape is? Running. Just leaving. Paul's great words of wisdom to Timothy were just flee. Sometimes the easiest way to avoid temptation is just run from it. You're sitting there at the break table at work. The conversation starts to turn south. Gossip's going on. Bad stories are going on. Leave. Well, there's no place else to eat. Go out in your car and sit in 20 degree weather with your coat on. Flee. We can flee. Something's on TV you don't want to see. Shut it off. Leave the room. Flee. God will always give you a way of escape. We have this tendency to sit there and think, I can't. I can't say no to this. This is too strong. This is too powerful. You are limiting the power of God in your life. The temptation can be defeated through the Lord. Does that make it easy? No. Pastor Rich says this all the time. He goes, there's three things against me. He goes, the world is trying to bring me down. Satan's trying to bring me down. My own flesh is trying to bring me down. Think about that. Anywhere you go, the world is trying to bring you down. The enemy is trying to bring you down. And if you can get away from the world, if you can get away from the enemy, there's still just you, our own flesh. Once again, God doesn't leave us alone, though, because he's given us three things to help us. He's given you the word of God. He's given you the body of Christ. And he gave you God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Think about that for a second. The world, the enemy, and the flesh is trying to bring you down. Think of the three weapons that God gave you. The first one, the word of God. The Word of God promises in Psalm 119, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against God. That's what Psalm 119 says. If there is an area of struggle or temptation in your life, I encourage you to find every scripture you can, write it down, and memorize it. When you're tempted to stray, be it gossip, be it anger, be it lust, be it whatever, Start quoting those scriptures. There's a power in the word of God. Number two, the body of Christ. I encourage you to find a brother or sister in the Lord. If you're a gal, find a gal. If you're a guy, find a guy for accountability. Tell them the areas you struggle with. Say, help keep me accountable. Check in on me. Pray for me. When I'm struggling, can I call you? That's what we're here for is the body of Christ. And lastly, the Holy Spirit. As a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That's pretty powerful. Putting all these things together, this is the battle that we can win. It's not easy. It's difficult. We try to implement this with the boys. We had a new room remodeled at the house. So all four boys used to be in one room and the baby was in the other. So all four boys in one room was not really working out real, real well. So we have now the boys are split. We have Elias and Judah in one room. 
We have uh, Kenan and Layden in the other room, and we have the baby in the, in the other room. So now it's two and two. Now one thing that's kind of happened that we did not expect is now that there's two and two in each room, the whole I'm scared thing pops up a little bit more. When all you were all four in one room hitting each other and wrestling all night, they didn't get scared. Now it's a little more I'm scared. So they come out, and, and we're scared. So this is what we've said. When they come out, we go through this whole thing, and I've shared this with you before. Okay, you're scared. I always say, who's outside watching the house? Bella. That's our dog. Bella's watching the house. Who's inside watching out for you guys? Mom and Dad. And who's over everything watching you? God. What we've started doing now is this. Before you come out and tell us you're scared, you have to do two things first. First thing you have to do is you have to quote Matthew 10.31 out loud. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Second thing you need to do is you need to find the buddy that you're sleeping with, and you two need to stop and pray. Quote the verse first, seek the Lord with the body, and then if you're scared, still come out. But by golly, you better be scared by that time. (laughs) So, trying to implement this in them, this idea of scripture and prayer and the Lord, that is what's going to get you through this. You will be tempted. Jesus said it's impossible for you to go through this life without being tempted. But he's also given you a plan to battle it. Now go to verse 2. Verse 2 is basically saying it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea and that he should offend one of these little ones. Basically what Jesus is saying is you're going to be tempted in this world. He goes, you don't be the problem. You don't go bring somebody down. You don't do things that's going to cause someone else to stumble. If you have a brother or sister that struggles with fill in the blank and the easy example is let's say alcohol, don't invite them over to have a drink. Don't do that type of thing. We're getting into the summer months. Women, young girls, watch what you wear this summer. Modesty, cover up. This idea of watching out for other people and making sure that we're not doing something to bring other people down. Jesus says you've got enough trouble as it is. Don't. So what happens when somebody wrongs you? What happens when you've been wronged, someone sins against you, depending on your translation, they trespass against you? Verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. You're going to get wronged in this life. There's no way around that. Someone is going to do something to upset you, to anger you, to wrong you, to hurt your feelings, to bother you. It is going to happen. So what's the first thing you do? According to the Bible, is you rebuke them. Now, you remember our rule on rebuking somebody. There's three words. It has to be done in love, in truth, and led by the Spirit. If you're going to go rebuke somebody and say, you have wronged me, you have hurt me, it is done in love, it is done in truth, and it's done through the leading of the Spirit. We quote this verse a lot out here. Bear with me. Ephesians 4.15 it says, speak the truth in love. You've heard me say many times, I've seen people speak truth, but it's not in love. I've seen people speak love, which has no basis of truth. You need truth, love, and spirit-led. If you're sitting there having an argument with a co-worker, your spouse, your kid, your neighbor, whatever, and you're screaming and yelling, you may be screaming and yelling truth, but you are not screaming and yelling love, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not spirit-led. You may be truth, so therefore you may justify it. Well, everything I'm saying is true. Yeah, but it's not spirit-led and it's not in love. You have to have all three. Love, truth, spirit-led. And when you rebuke in truth, you're not rebuking in emotion. 
You always do this. You never do this. You No, let go of the emotion. Here is the instance, the instance that happened. You've wronged me. You've hurt me. I am telling you this in love. And the Spirit, I prayed over this, and this is the conversation I want to have, and I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to drop it. And I'm not going to let it go. Go on and on and on. So what happens? And you rebuke them in love, spirit-led in truth. Guess what? They repent. And what's the next part? You forgive them. How simple. Rebuke, repent, forgive. That word forgive means to literally send away. I mean, you send it away. All that hurt, all that anger, all that resentment, all that bitterness you have, you send away. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love keeps no record of being wronged. You let go of it all and you send it completely away. That's what it means. Now, you may be smart and you may look at verse 3 and says, Yeah, that only works if they repent. What happens if I pray over it? I address the issue. It's done in love. It's done in truth. It's done in the Spirit. And I get nothing. What do I do then? Well, let's look at what Jesus did. What did Jesus do in Luke 23? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What did Joseph do in Genesis 50 when he had been sold as a slave by his brothers? He said, you meant this for harm, but God meant this for good. See, we have an example of Christ where we say we forgive, we let it go. Well, if they're not sorry, we show that picture of Jesus. Well, you know what? It's difficult for me to let it go. I have been so hurt. I've been so wrong. And I want to let everybody know, and I'm not picking on anybody when I say this, but I hear this a lot. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what they've done to me. You don't know what they've said to me. You don't know how they've treated me. You don't know, and we can go on and on. And you're right, I don't know. But I know what I've done to Jesus, and Jesus has forgiven me. So Jesus set the example of forgiveness that I'm supposed to follow. And you may sit there and say, I hear everything you're saying, but you know what? This person's still my enemy. And I say, Amen. He's your enemy, because the Bible says, Love your enemy, pray for your enemy, and bless your enemy. So if you want to call him your enemy, that is great. You're not going to win this argument. You either forgive them as a Christian in Jesus, or if you want to call him your enemy, bless him, love him, and pray for him. You can't win. You can't hold on to that unforgiveness. I, I heard someone say one time, and I, and I have it written down in my office, so I may uh, mess this up, but you know, holding on to bitterness is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. It just doesn't work. We forgive. We move on. We send it away, no matter how much we've been harmed. Let's build on this. Can you go to Romans 12? Romans 12, please. Romans 12. These are some passages we've hit a lot, but it's important to cover this. Two great little verses here. On not allowing the anger to control us. Romans 12. And uh, let's look it up here in verse 14. It says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That word bless, as we've mentioned before out here, we actually get the English word eulogize out of that. I've done a lot of funerals. And what do you do at a funeral? You always just say something good about somebody. You just do. That's the way the funeral is. No matter how that person lived or acted, generally speaking, at any funeral, you just speak of the good. Of their life. God says you're supposed to bless those who persecute you and do not curse. You have somebody that really bothers you, somebody that's really hurt you and wronged you. What are your words about them like to other people? 
I've seen spouses tear down their spouse. I've seen people tear down their boss. I've seen people tear down their friends, their kids, their grandkids, their parents, etc. Okay, you may have been wronged by those people in your life. Bless them. God loves them. Yes, they're wrong. They are so wrong on how they have treated you. But you bless them and you forgive them. Look at the rest of this here in verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Your desire, your goal is peace. That is your goal. Now, as much as depends on you, you may do everything right, and they still don't want peace. You can't do anything about that. Your slate is clean. You do what you can to forgive. You do what you can to move on. If they choose not to, that's between them and the Lord. Let's go one step further with this. Hebrews 12, please. Hebrews 12. Let's take that word peace and go one step further. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, and uh, let's start here in verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with all people. You can't control how they respond. You can't control their emotions. You can't control any of that. You are only responsible by saying, I am pursuing peace through the Lord on this. That's all I can do. What's the opposite? Well, look at verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. I know people that truly love the Lord. They, during worship, they just love worship. They will serve. They love Jesus, the Word, witnessing. If you've mentioned a certain name to them, anger and venom just spew out of them. They have bitterness over something that's been happened. And once again, let me just reiterate this. You may have been wronged. I mean, you, you may have been completely and utterly wronged. It doesn't give you the right to hang on to that and to allow that to become bitter. One of my favorite emotions is righteous anger. I love it when something happens and I have the right to be angry and it's a biblical anger. And I can sit there and say, I have the right to be angry about this and it feels good. You know what the problem with righteous anger is? Righteous anger becomes sinful anger really quick. You may be righteously angry over what someone has done to you, said to you, hurt you. But that righteous anger in an instant becomes sinful when it becomes bitter and you allow it to control you. And you don't allow that forgiving heart of Christ to come through. Back to Luke 17, because now the subject comes up. But what about forgiveness? Look at verse 4. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. That's tough. I had somebody contact me one time. Contacted me and said, um, so-and-so was doing this to me. It was a spouse. And said, I've forgiven him seven times today. Do I need to do it the eighth time? They were being honest. I said, yeah. I said, well, the verse says seven times. I said, yeah, but Jesus also said 70 times seven. 490. And I think I know this person well enough to know they're probably still counting. The idea is seven is a number of completion. I completely and utterly always forgive. Okay, yeah, but this is what's going to happen. 
He's going to yell and scream at me today. He's going to feel bad tonight. He'll wake up tomorrow, say he's sorry. In two days, he'll do it again. In two days, you forgive him again. Okay, well, this is what she's going to do. She always loses it. She gets mad. She gets angry. She says horrible, nasty things. And days and weeks and months may go by, and then she'll finally come back and say she's sorry. And guess what? We'll repeat it again. Well, then you forgive her again. Once again, you can't win this one. If they come and say they're sorry, you forgive them. Yeah, but that's the thing. See, they're coming and saying they're sorry, but I know they're really not sorry. It's amazing how in the Bible, one of the gifts of the Spirit, it's not mentioned, is obviously mind reading. Because I've met so many Christians that can get into someone's mind and heart and say they're really not sorry. How do you know? I just know. How do you know that? Because there's been times in my life I've said I'm sorry. And I probably wasn't, but I sure looked good. And there's been times in my life where I said I'm sorry, and I probably didn't sound like it, but I was really heartbroken over it. Don't judge someone's I'm sorry. Well, if they're really sorry, they would do this. Don't judge someone's I'm sorry. If someone repents, you forgive. If someone doesn't repent, you let it go. Don't hold on to this bitterness, this anger, this resentment. It will destroy you. And here's the truth in the matter. Some of you want to be destroyed. If he's going to be that way, I'm going to be that way, and we're both going down. I'm just going to be honest with you, that is so unchristlike. That is completely, utterly against anything Christ would say or teach. A forgiving heart. How difficult is this? Look at verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I think the apostles heard this teaching and said, we can't do this. Lord, help us. Help us increase our faith. I can't. I, I, can't, I, I can't go to work tomorrow and see this person and what they've done to me. I, I can't at the family get-togethers show up and see that, that person. I can't wake up tomorrow with that person. I can't. Verse 5, increase our faith, Lord. We can do this through you. We can do this through you. I, I can forgive. Jesus set the example in forgiveness. There's numerous verses, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, where it says, just as Christ forgave you, you forgive other people. He set the example. And faith is powerful. Look at verse 6. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the seed and would obey you. Jesus is saying, take that faith and trust that there can be healing. Where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. By being in the word, my faith grows. Because when I'm in the word, I see examples of Joseph who could forgive his brothers where he shouldn't have been able to, but he could. I see the example of Jesus who can forgive when he shouldn't have been able to. I mean, they so wronged him. So when I'm in the Word, I see these godly examples of people that forgive and say, Lord, I can do that through you. Okay, let's just be honest. Let's just say you still don't want to. You hear all this, you understand all this, you see all this, and you still just don't want to. Verse 7. Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down and eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? 
Basically, what he's saying here is, okay, you have a servant. You get home, and as you get home, your servant's there. You don't say to the servant, hey, sit down, grab a bite, uh, rest up. You say to the servant, take care of me first, and then go take care of yourself. That's the term, servant. They serve. Well, verse 9. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Does the servant get a huge pat on the back for doing what he was supposed to do in the first place? You ever know somebody like that? I, I pick on Dawn a lot because she deserves it. But she is, she's verse 9. And, and you know what? And that's just her personality trait. She makes this abundantly clear. Why would I say thank you to you for doing something you're supposed to do? The boys and I spent our whole life waiting for one pat on the back from Dawn. It's like Haley's Comet. Once every 86 years, she'll, she'll appreciate. Some people are just that way. And, that, and, and she's right. Mom, I brushed my teeth. Well, you're supposed to brush your teeth. Go to bed. That's dawn. I'm like, oh, good job, guys. Let me see your teeth. You know, everybody's a different personality. So, basically what Jesus is saying here is the master says, I'm not going to jump up and down because you did what was right. You're supposed to do what's right. You're the servant. Well, guess what? Verse 10. So, likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. We have done what is our responsibility. We have done what is our necessity to do. The point is this. I want you to forgive. You can either forgive because Jesus forgave you. You can either forgive because it's going to cause bitterness in your life if you don't. Or by golly, the last point, you can forgive because God just flat out told you to. You have to. That is the unprofitable servant. God told you it is your duty, it is your responsibility to forgive. And if you choose not to do it, you are in sin. God says, I'm not going to allow you to get away with this one. Now, you may be sitting here once again saying, you still don't know what they did. does not matter. Forgive because Jesus forgave. Forgive because it keeps you from being uh, bitter. Or forgive because it's just the right thing to do. This is the heart that God is asking of you. He says, it is your duty. It is your necessity. You are the unprofitable, unworthy servant. We did not deserve the grace, love, and forgiveness of Jesus. But he still did it. He set the example for us. He tells us in 1 Peter 2 to honor all. And I can find you a verse that also says, love all, honor all, respect all, forgive all. Now what happens, though, is we start adding to the Bible. I've heard people say, I don't give respect, you have to earn it. That's not biblical. Biblical is I respect you because God told me to. I've heard people say, well, you know what, when they're sorry, I'll forgive them. God says, just let it go now. Well, you know what, when you do something good to me, I'll love you back. This is a fair trade. This is an equal arrangement. No, it's not. Jesus set the example that this is not an equal arrangement. He did all the dying, all the loving, and we get all the forgiveness. It's not equal. So if you're sitting there saying, I will respect you when I think you've earned it. I will love you when I think you've earned it. I will forgive you when I think you've earned it. You're not understanding love and respect and grace and mercy. Jesus says, honor all. Do you realize how difficult that is to do? Some of you work some of you live with, some of you are married, some of you are constantly around people that probably don't deserve love, honor, respect, or forgiveness. What do you do in that situation? Because I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes, James, 
I can't do it. I can't forgive. I can't let it go. I can't love. I can't respect. I can't. At that time, I need to put on Christ. Go to Colossians 3, please. I'm going to share with you a story that I've shared with you before. I mean, some of you may have heard it, but it was something that really impacted me. Give credit where credit to do. It was uh, through John Corson, a pastor that I really respect and admire a lot. Colossians 3, please. He told this story, and it's not like I said, some of you have heard it. It was a very, very long day. It was a very difficult day, and he had one of his kids with him. And it was one of those classic examples of they needed to run into the supermarket and grab something before they got home. So he tells his son that's going in with him, listen, we are going in, we're grabbing the milk, and we're leaving. That's what we're doing. Have you ever had that type of trip? We're going in, we're grabbing it, we're getting out. So that's the plan. So John Corson and his son go in. They go down the aisle to get the milk, and they run into someone from his church. He's a very needy person. So John Corson says at that time, he has a little 20-minute impromptu counseling session right there in the middle of the supermarket when he just wanted to grab milk, get in, get out, go home. It was a long day. It was a rough day. That's not what he wanted to do. So for 20 minutes, guess what he does? He puts a smile on his face. He quotes scripture. He says, I'll pray with you. He encourages. He uplifts. He does it. So they go grab the milk and go, eventually go home. His son asked him, Dad, was that a put-on? And John Corson's response says, yes, it was. I put on Jesus. Because John Corson did not want to stop in the middle of the aisle and have a 20-minute counseling session with somebody. We put on Jesus. You don't want to forgive. You don't want to let go. You, don't, you want to be bitter. You want to be angry. You want to be, you're going down, I'm going down with you. In fact, I'm taking you down. You put on Jesus. That phrase, put on, in the Greek, literally means to clothe yourself. You literally put on Christ and say, I am incapable of forgiving, letting go, etc., and I put on Christ. Look at Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, there's that phrase, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Some of your translations may say patience and gentleness, etc. I put those things on. I put on tender mercies, goodness, and humility, and and patience. I put these things on. In the middle of an argument, I put those things on. In the middle of being hurt and bitter, I put those things on. That's not me. I hear people come up and say, well, I'm just really not a patient person. Well, Jesus is. Put on Christ. I'm really not a forgiving person. Well, Jesus is. Put on Christ. That's what we do. So when you feel that anger, and you know what? This is how she always acts. This is what he always does. This is what they always do to me. And you find yourself just going downhill. You need to stop, put on Jesus, and have tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, patience, gentleness. That is what you do. Why? Verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has to complain against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Christ set the example. Still difficult. That's why it says in verse 13, bearing with one another. That phrase bearing means to carry a load. You may be the only one putting effort into your marriage. Bear with your spouse. You may be the only one on your line trying to do what's right. Bear with your coworkers. You may be the only one in your family trying to be a godly example. Bear with them. Forgive them. Put on Christ. That's the example that Jesus set for us. It's a difficult thing to do. And you know what? I can't. So since I can't, 
I pray verse 5, increase my faith, Lord, help me. Since I can't, I say, I have to put on Jesus because James can't. I have to say, Lord, I need to be in the Word to be strong. I need accountability for my brothers and the Lord. I need you because I can't do these things. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of being hurt. I'm so tired of being wrong. I'm so tired of being angry and upset and bitter. I just want to put on Jesus and look at Him through the eyes of Christ and forgive and let go, send away. Boy, it's difficult to do. I'll be the first one to say that. But you know what? We can go through the whole point again. You forgive because Jesus forgave. You forgive and let go because it keeps you from being bitter. Or we can just get to the last point. You forgive because that's what you're told to do. Either way, God says this is the best thing for you. Marv, if you want to come forward here for the final song. It's a tough lesson. It's a tough thing to put into practice.